good to see you guys. Uh, I want to I wanna thank you for being in prayer for my family, for Anna. Um, it's incredible to have a church behind you. And so thank you for that. My little girl is, uh, she's doing well. Uh, she's, you know, she'll be in recovery a little bit, but this surgery like changed her life. Um, and she will, there are possibilities for her future that she didn't have two weeks ago. And so, yeah. So thanks, please still be in, in prayer for her and for us. We're a little tired. She's a little tired. She's a little sore. Um, but she was like hitting people yesterday. And that was like two weeks without that. So we're very grateful. Um, we're in this So series. And last week, I know you guys talked through the story of God. And because uh, Jamel was here, you went Genesis 2 Revelation. You covered the whole thing, right? So you, went, you know the story of God, and this year we are going to spend time learning the story of God, and we're going to learn how that in, impacts our outlook and how it is that we bear witness. And, and that's where the word so comes from. It's a story of God. It's how that impacts our outlook and the way that we witness. And today we're going to talk about those last two letters. And we're going to start out in Acts chapter 9, so if you want to Open your Bible or device or on the screens, these words will be there. But the first five verses go like this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. This is a chunk of scripture. Now we, we probably, if you grew up in the church, if you spent some time in the church, you probably know this chunk, but most likely you fast forward past this to Paul. Most often we like see this chunk and we're like, wow, that's intimidating. Let's go to the good stuff because this is scary. But for a minute, we're going to sit in this because there's something really important when we slow down that we realize Saul in Acts nine believes he's a man of God. I think this is really important. He believes he is doing the will of, of his God. And he's, he's out doing what he believes God is asking him to do. And what he is actually doing is going synagogue to synagogue, city to city, finding people who are the way, which what the way means is you. Finding people who gather to hear the name of Jesus, he's finding them and he's binding them and killing them. And he's going and getting state papers that make it okay to do this. He's getting approval from the officials to go from city to city to city to city to find anyone who is a part of the way and haul them back to Jerusalem to be killed. And what should what should catch us off guard and what should stop us a bit is he believes he's doing this in the name of God. Very few people wake up in the morning and say, hey, you know what? I want to be evil. I really just want to be the meanest person. I want to be as off track as I can be. 
I've met some shady folk who really don't know that they are. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, this is the way people live. And like, I promise you, that's not how people live. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, they got in some rut in the road and just followed that rut to really dangerous places. We need to be aware of this. We're not immune to it. Just because many of us have pledged our allegiance to Jesus does not mean we're immune to getting in some rut that leads to dangerous places. And here we find a man who believes in the name of God that he is doing the will of God and he ends up doing the exact opposite. But this is where hope hits us. In verse three, it says, as he went on his way. He is on this little rut on his way to go persecute more people who are known for following the way. And as he goes, Jesus meets him. And Saul falls to the ground. He falls over. He can't handle it. I was sitting in this this week, and I was like, "I, I really think I need to be knocked to the ground more. I really think as a church, one church needs to be knocked to the ground more. Not that we're bad, not that we're, but we're not immune to it, right? It's really easy to just follow these patterns that we're in and these encounters with God, these encounters where Jesus shows himself clearly and and knocks us to the ground. I think we need this because this encounter transforms Saul and his outlook on absolutely everything. Saul post 9 verse 5 is completely different than Saul chapter 9 verse 4. Completely different. This little deal from 3 to 5 where he's on his way to all that follows are a completely different man because he encountered the living Jesus and it transformed his outlook on everything in life. This is what we need. But I found Jesus when I was like four years old. Congratulations, you need it again. I need it again. Every time we gather to worship, that's what we need. We need seats under us, not because we're tired, but because sometimes we just need to fall back into it. And encounter Jesus in a very, very real way. If you're just rolling along with culture and your Bible's open and your Sunday is attended, then I'm telling you, you've missed it. If I'm just going along with culture and my Bible is open and Sundays are attended, I have missed it. I have missed it all. And I need a radical encounter with a living God. Now, the problem is a lot of us think, well, I'm not, I'm not doing murderous threats. I'm not going around gathering legal paperwork to kill people, so I'm not like that. And so we give ourselves passes. But we all need our outlook on life to be transformed. We all need to understand the kingdom of God more and more and more. And so if I can, just for a couple minutes... I'm going to tell you how this has happened in my life just in the last two weeks. Because sometimes the most relevant thing is like the newest thing, right? And so uh, for like 11 days, I was in the hospital with my little girl. My little girl went in. She doesn't, you know her. She's the one who usually is over here yelling at me. Uh, She had some scary blood work happen. 
She had some other things going on. We knew that she needed to have this feeding tube put in so that she could grow. Um, it just all became real urgent, and this really routine thing became kind of a little more scary to a family that doesn't have a medical background. Thankfully, we have great friends who are in the medical world who are like, no, this is okay. You're going to be okay. But I, my background, like, I'm only trained to hope for things. <laughs> like, that's it. And so I, I'm like, okay, this is hope versus medical. Like, for two weeks, you know? And, and everything medical sounded scary. And I'm in the elevator with people who are sad and, and depressed for good reason because what they're facing is, like, heavy. But I'm like, no, I am, like, called to believe in this living hope. And I need to live in this even though, like, I don't understand things or it sounds scary. And so I'm sitting there pre-surgery, a couple days before surgery, blood work, scary. You know when your kid's in, in the hospital. Hopefully you don't. But if you know when your kid's in the hospital, there's, like, tubes everywhere. And this poor girl even had tubes in her nose. And, and she, just, she just wants her dad to hold her. But I couldn't even, like, hold her because she's just wrapped up to everything, right? So I got this little chair next to her bed and she's laying on like the seizure padding and my arm is in the bed and I'm in the chair and she's snuggled up on my arm and I'm laying on her head and that's how we sleep for the night at least like for 20 minutes before the nurse comes in and like every 20 minutes we like rejostle but then like we lay like that and I'm, I'm sitting there and, and she's just kind of moaning she's not feeling great and I'm not feeling great I'm not comfortable my ginger ale is like 12 feet away and I can't get to it and I'm like I want to do anything to take care of my little girl here. And instantly God's spirit reminds me that even, even you who are evil, even you who are evil want to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven when you ask him? And I was like, oh, I am shady because I'm about to let go of my girl for that ginger ale. But I want nothing more than my daughter to be whole, but he's more her daughter than mine. She's on loan to me. And so, like, I get to ask. I get to ask the king of the world to intercede for his daughter. And it comes to prayer, right? And so I'm like, yeah, I, I, I know how to pray. One would, could say I'm a professional at it. But I, I like, went to be reminded of how Jesus says to pray because he's just better at it than I. And in Matthew 6, he says some words that I needed to read and I needed to hear. He says, your, your father who sees in secret will reward. When you, when you pray, go into the room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And I got to thinking and just searching my heart and like, sometimes when I pray, I act like there is this lock to pick. And if I say the right words and if I say them in the right order and all this kind of stuff, I can pick a lock like I'm an Italian job or something like that. And if I pick the lock, then I get to take this thing that is not mine. And that is not what prayer is. That's not what scripture says. It says that my father knows what I need before I ask him. And so I found myself in prayer saying very little. My little girl is resting on my arm and I find myself just saying help. And not in this defeatist, 
Well, but like you love her more than I love her. And I can't imagine loving her more, so can you help? And I don't know what's going on in her little body until I look at an x-ray, but you do. Will you help? Will you give wisdom? And I don't need to say a thousand things. And I don't need to like post my prayer so you guys think I like can word things really well or anything. Not, I, I, just, I just sat there by my little girl and said, will, will you help? Will you help my little girl? Will you give my wife sleep? She's tired. And will you comfort my boys because they're scared? And then I'm able to shut my eyes and sleep and trust that the God who spins the world will keep her heart rate under control and her body moving the way that it moves and that I can, I can rest. See, I didn't need to say a ton. This prayer, this prayer when I'm praying it's this intimate thing right it's like me me and God but I kept I kept reading through Matthew 6 and and Jesus continues he teaches us the Lord's prayer but then he says this he says for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses I don't like this one it's this very intimate little moment with my heavenly father where it's, it feels like it's very individualistic, just me and him. And then he reminds me, this individualistic part of our society is not from God. This is not a holy thing that we should fight for and protect. That's not the way the kingdom works. It's an intimate moment, but it's not this individual moment. And he reminds me right here. He says, no, because this intimate moment is where I remind you, hey, if you've got people to forgive, forgive them because I want to forgive you. And inside I'm like, oh, God, search me and know me. Who is it that I'm harboring things against? Because I want to be forgiven. And I want them to know forgiveness. And it brings me to this interesting moment where I think most of us would prefer to live very loud and public with our prayer and very private and individual with our, with our forgiveness, right? And he calls us to do very opposite. Like, no, like forgive publicly, loudly, generously. And when you're in prayer, just sit in your closet with him. Not because you're ashamed, not because you're embarrassed, but because you don't need credit for that. If you want him to answer your prayers, ask him to answer your prayers instead of asking one another to answer your prayers. Sure, gather together so that more than one name agrees. And yes, God will be there in that. But oftentimes my prayers have been like, hey, Jamel, will you pray with me? And then will you fix it? Because I can be mad at Jamel. It feels weird being mad at God. You know what I mean? Sometimes we do that. We ask each other to pray. Will you pray with me? When what we really mean is, hey, can you take care of this for me? And he says, don't do that. Go to me in prayer. I already know what you need. So ask, but as you're asking, who is it that you need to forgive? Who is it that you need to lose? Because you want forgiveness. You want to be free. I sat there with my little girl on my arm and my Bible in my hand, like, okay, Lord, change my outlook on this. Change my heart on this. You're not finished with me yet. There's nothing that I've arrived at. This is a dangerous path if I stay in public prayer in private bitterness. 
Don't let me be there. He goes on in this chapter. Uh, you know these, these verses well, starting in 19. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love this passage, but oftentimes this passage feels like it's so like heaven-centered, like post-death centered, like not, not really this kingdom thing for right now. It feels like it matters later, and, and so I kind of dismiss it sometimes, but something in this God, God drew my attention to this week. It says, there your heart, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and like, okay. It matters where my heart is. It matters what is in heaven as well. But, but what this week caught my attention was where your treasure is, there your heart is. And like, oh, Lord, I want my heart to only be where you are. So then my treasure needs to be only where you are. If I treasure intimacy with Jesus, my heart will be there. My actions will be there. My life will follow that. If I treasure reconciliation, then my heart will be there and my actions and my words and my thoughts will be those of one who is reconciling. If my treasure is seeing the kingdom break through in powerful and profound ways, then my heart will be there and that's what I will be about and the other things I'll start to let go of. And in the hospital these last 11 days, these are the pieces that God began transforming in my own outlook. Where he was working on my heart and reminding me who I am. Yes, of course, he's reminding me of who he is, but he's reminding me who I am. Reminding me what my heart is to be about. Reminding me what my life is to be about. And that this is not just me living in a bubble on my own, but in all, all things, like we live together, this is a collective thing. You see, this, this transformation that he's doing in me, that he's doing in you, is not for us alone. And so, back to, back to Saul for a moment. He's Saul, and he's sent to the Gentiles. He's a Jewish man. A radical Jewish man who's sent to the Gentiles. And he begins going by the name of Paul. He spends two years in the city called Ephesus. If you know Ephesus, this is where the temple of Artemis is. This is Artemis is like the goddess of the time. Honestly, Artemis has a lot of power in our culture today. Artemis is this goddess of sexuality and pleasure and confusion and all of this kind of thing. People came from everywhere to worship the goddess of Artemis. And the temple was in Ephesus. The economy of the city was built around Artemis. It, it was like Gatlinburg with, with, a, with a temple there. Like there was all these trinkets you could buy. And everybody bought souvenirs from Ephesus. And, and so that's what the whole economy was set up as. And he went, Saul, now known as Paul, went there for two years. And he's making tents. He begins preaching in the synagogue. He's there for about three months, I believe. After three months, 
they're like, you can't preach here anymore. So he finds a, finds a hall and he just starts preaching in the hall and God does radical, powerful things. He's healing people through like handkerchiefs of Paul's and all of these kind of things. And it says in Acts that all of Asia begins to hear the story of Jesus because of this tent maker in Ephesus. All the people begin to hear. As Paul teaches the story of God for two years, over and over teaches the story of God. As he proclaims how God changed his outlook to absolutely everybody. Hey, I was this guy and I am no longer this guy. Get this, he was a guy who went to these people who were following the way and said, you're not Jewish enough, I'm gonna kill you. And then he's transformed to be called to the Gentiles who are like definitely not Jewish enough. And he goes to all the Gentiles for his life and says, my life is to pour into you and tell you you belong in the kingdom of God. I have been transformed. My outlook on everything is different. I once was headed this way. I am now headed this way. And he went for two years in this city and all he did was witness to the power of a living Jesus. And all of Asia hears of who Jesus is. And the economics of this city are transformed. I get this, like, The impact of him being in this city, simply bearing witness to the story of God, transforming his outlook, changes the economics. Silversmiths started a riot against Paul to get him kicked out because they couldn't make trinkets anymore. Nobody wanted to buy them because they came to worship Artemis and they left worshiping Jesus. And Jesus doesn't need like trinkets. So there's nothing you can really sell. And so they lost their businesses. And this riot starts and all of this kind of stuff. Read through it, this, uh, this story in, in the book of Acts. And he's there for two years and then he moves on. But he calls these Ephesian elders together as he's leaving. And I, these are the words that I want to read w- with you. In chapter 20, starting in 18, he's speaking to these elders of the church that became dear to him. And he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and the faith in our Lord Jesus. Like this, This is it. For years, he's there and he says to the leaders, I was with you for two years and I I worked and I taught and I opened up the scriptures with you and I shared from my life and I never shrank back. And as I sat in in the hospital, it was not a hotel, in the hospital this week, as I sat in that hospital and I'm looking at my little girl and I'm praying for her and I'm thinking about us and I'm in the elevator with all of these families who are hurting in real ways but are in our city, I was like, Lord, let me be a person who never shrinks back. And if I'm a person who never shrinks back, that means I'm in a church that will not shrink back. Because this is not about me doing something on my own. This is about us collectively saying, you know what, we are going to do the exact thing that God has called us to do. 
Our words have power. And so I'm in the elevator riding with this one family, a sweet family who had been there for two months, and I just say, can I pray with you? I'll pray with them. This other family, we're at the vending machine. This guy really wanted a big red and was sad they weren't there. I'd never understand that, so I prayed for him on that one. And then I got him, I bought him another soda. And I buy him this soda, and he he's asks about my daughter, and he sees peace on me. And I, I here's what we often won't do. I, 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 I name the source of peace. I was like, yeah, I, I am pretty, I'm kind of scared, but I'm pretty peaceful. I'm sleeping okay. I, I really believe Jesus knows my daughter. And it's not because we're special. He knows yours. Yeah. Have a little conversation over his Mountain Dew coming out of the vending machine. They're checking my daughter's heart rates and all these kind of things. And like, okay, I know how to pray. I know how to pray for the staff who's taking care of my daughter. I know how to say to them, thank you sincerely for loving my daughter like she's yours. And they see, why is it that you're like this? Let me tell you why I'm like this. It's not because I'm a good dude. I am not a good dude. I serve a good God. I have a really, really good father. And one of the things I'm reminded of this, this week is he didn't bypass me to care for my daughter. He didn't. He cared for my daughter like a good father would. He cared for me like his son needed as well. And as it comes to us in this year, as we grow in knowing the story of God and letting this story transform our hearts so that our outlook is different and bear witness, this is what I see. I see that as we sow our story will be that when you look back, that this church never shrank back. And we never shrank back. That hard times came and trials came and tests came, but with joy we said we will serve the Lord and go in the direction that the Lord calls us to go. We won't do the thing that grows us the fastest or is most popular or any of that kind of stuff. We will do the work of being the people of God and we will praise him along the way and we will never shrink back from being the church that God intended us to be. And that I know will be said of us. And the fruit will be his fruit. And we'll celebrate every piece. And along the way, I know that there are parts of me that need to be transformed. There are parts of you that need to be transformed. There are parts of us collectively that need to be transformed. And let's trust our good, good Father to do exactly that thing. It's scary to be in process. But it's good to be in good hands. And so as we walk into this first year of sowing, we're going to do it by walking to his table. That's one that we do every week. And there, I want to invite you to take a piece of bread, knowing that that is the body of Christ, which was broken for you. So all of these things that you once were held down by, you don't have to be any longer. And then take a cup, which represents his blood, and know that his life was poured out for you, for me, that we might be alive, that we might know that life within us. We might be transformed by his power, by his might, by his love. And this city may never look the same. May we gather at that table. And from this moment on, may we be a people who never shrink back. So I want to invite you to stand. 
I'm going to pray that over us. And then let's worship and go to the table. Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that you meet us in the pages of that word. Thank you that you knock us to our feet more than once. And when we gather on Sundays, when we gather through the week, when we meet you in the mornings and the evenings, may you continue to open our eyes to see you more clearly. May you continue to transform the way that we're living. May we be a people whose heart treasures your kingdom, treasures you. And I thank you that you meet us at this table as we are that we find your grace, your mercy, your healing, your love in that place. And may your kingdom come and your will be done in this place just like heaven. May we never shrink back in your name.